welcome you to the Steve Schramm Show. We are here for another week to talk to you about something that is a bit of a follow-up from a few lessons ago. If you remember a few lessons ago, we interviewed a gentleman named Mark Lambert. He is the host of the Hey Pastor podcast, and we talked about something kind of interesting. We talked about from Jesus to Genesis. How do we get from Jesus back to Genesis, and what does that have to do with the age of the earth debate? Does Genesis 1 actually even tell us anything about something like the age of the earth? And um, we think uh, that, it, that it probably doesn't. And this morning I want to answer an objection to that claim. Well, certainly we want to thank you again for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to join us. Have for you today what's hopefully going to be a, a fun and an interesting episode. I just want to start off before answering a couple questions that we recently uh, received by answering an objection to something that that came up when we got near the end of our time with Mark Lambert a couple of weeks ago. So we, if you'll remember, we started in that interview with Jesus. And the whole um, point that we wanted to get to really is why we think that young age creationism is true. In other words, why we think it is taught by the Bible, or at least that it can be uh, received inductively from a study of the Bible, why the age of the earth is young, at least relatively speaking. I, I tend to think six to 7,000 years is young, uh, or is old rather, but it's certainly young with respect to the 4.5 billion that it's supposed to be. Now, you know, we did not take any time to speak as to why I think that's an important thing. And of course, I do think it's an, an important thing. It's not the main thing, certainly, but it is an important thing. We didn't take any time in that episode to talk about it. And I don't think we're going to take any time this morning to talk about it either. You probably already know my thoughts on that. If you've been listening to this for a while, why or my podcast here for a while, why I think that that's important and uh, why I think you should too. And you can go back if you don't know to some of our very first episodes and learn more about that. Actually, the first oh, 50 or 60 episodes of this podcast were dedicated completely to the topic of young age creationism. So we still talk about it from time to time because I do think it's important and it's certainly uh, one of my passions and one of my favorite topics. Now, one of the things when we arrived to the to the end of that is you find yourself looking at Genesis 1, which is where most people think the debate is. They'll immediately start talking about the six days of Genesis and whether or not the teaching of six days lends itself to an old earth or to a young earth. 
And of course, in that episode, Mark and I argued, no, we argued that really what happens is this information is drawn from a more inductive and systematic study of the entire scriptures, taking multiple things into account, including theology, direct statements of scripture, the historical importance of scripture to the writers uh, of, of scripture itself, and things like that. We, we think that those things are what help us determine the age of the earth, at least roughly, okay? Not anything that we find in Genesis 1. And after the interview was over, Mark and I talked for a few more minutes because I, I saw, wrote down on, on a piece of paper that he had provided me with, with some notes of his, uh, I saw one of the potential objections to this written down, and I thought, well, okay, so this is kind of interesting, um, an interesting way of putting this, and so I thought, well, I'm probably going to do an episode on this a few weeks down the road, just as a matter of follow-up, and try to explain uh, again, finally, why exactly it is that Genesis 1 really um, doesn't say much about the age of the earth at all. Not that the Bible doesn't say much about the age of the earth, but that Genesis doesn't. Now, here's what we mean by this. Now, so many people will say that those who take Genesis in some kind of non-literal fashion are simply denying the clear teaching of Scripture. You ever heard this before? Uh, as, as a matter of fact, you may have said it before. I don't know. That the, the folks who uh, take Genesis 1 to say either that there's that the earth is old, maybe the, the word yom in you know the Hebrew word yom, which is the word for, for that we, we understand means day in Genesis 1. Maybe that word could be stretched to include billions of years <laughs> of, of time. You've heard the arguments, things like that. Or that Genesis is just not really literal at all. It is uh, some form of uh, of poetry. It's not poetry itself, they'll say, but it is uh, non-literal, and there are certain markers in the text that give us that, etc., etc., etc. Well, of course, I don't think that it, it's, it's good to charge folks who take Genesis differently with being Bible uh, deniers. Now, certainly, I think you could probably make the case that some who've done that are. But in many cases, as I've read their work and studied their work and, and, and watched these kinds of teachers, in a lot of cases, they are just trying to understand faithfully from a biblical perspective what it is that Genesis 1 actually means or has to mean. For example, uh, William Lane Craig has, uh, at this point, not uh, said anything uh, to conclude finally about what he thinks Genesis 1 
really is saying he he claims that he has a difficulty in interpreting this particular piece of, of literature because it is such a unique piece of literature in historical writing. And he says that young uh, age creationism really um, is just one or the, the, the literal her- hermeneutic that, that uh, informs the historical grammatic uh, literal understanding of Genesis 1 that informs the young age creationist view of it. He says that is one very uh, logical and very acceptable interpretation of that passage, but he says it in that portion of scripture, but he says that it may not be the only one. There may be other ones available to the biblically faithful Christian. Now, of course, I don't necessarily agree with him on that. I, I, I don't agree with him on that. I don't think that there are multiple interpretations of Genesis that are legitimate because to me, I, I clearly can see the markers of historical writing in there and that really does not bother me a bit. But that does not mean that William Lane Craig, for example, or somebody else is a, is a Bible denier. And those scholars who take Genesis differently than we do, they do not deny Genesis, at least not many of them. Some of them do. Of course, you've got, you know, liberal critics, etc. But I'm talking about sound evangelical Bible scholars who take Genesis 1 differently than we do. The issue here is that they are not denying Genesis. They're denying our understanding of Genesis in favor of their own informed, allegedly informed understanding of Genesis. I say allegedly not in a pejorative way, but just because they claim to have an informed, um, scholastically backed interpretation. Okay. Um, So they want to be faithful to Genesis they just want to make sure that they are understanding it in the right way. They still accept it as scripture. They believe that whatever it is teaching is an important teaching, but it's just not saying the same thing that, for instance, the young age creationists like you or I think it is saying. So the issue arises then of whether or not this text should be interpreted via um a a more literal natural reading or understanding now i think most uh or at least many faithful bible scholars would still want to say that we're using a historical grammatic hermeneutic and of course i, I certainly want to say that but they indeed claim that their use of this hermeneutic is nevertheless coming out with a different interpretation of uh, of, of the words and, and phrases. So if we're giving them the benefit of the doubt, we're saying they are trying to interpret according to a literal or a historical grammatic um, her- hermeneutical framework, and yet they're coming to a different conclusion than us, then maybe there is some merit to the claim 
that Genesis 1 does not say anything at all about the age of the earth, strictly speaking. Now, obviously, I do think that the Bible, uh, that Genesis 1 is consistent with that with the rest of that biblical message that we talked about a few weeks ago that gives us a young age for creation. I do believe that it matters that creation was created in six days and that when you do the exegetical work on the passage, I do think you come out to six roughly 24-hour days. You come out to periods of lightness and darkness uh, in the first three days that eventually were taken over by the sun on day four and going on from there. I think there's absolutely no reason to think that day in one through three means anything different than four through six. And indeed, I think seven is exactly the same situation. I don't think there's any room for long ages in day number seven either. So, Given that different folks who claim to be at least attempting to be biblically sound and biblically faithful um, exegetes of Scripture come to some radically different conclusions, let me kind of give you this observation that Mark had that I thought, wow, we got to get this, we got to get this in front of them. Um, if Genesis 1 is literal. If Genesis 1 is indeed to be taken literal, then creation was in six days. It's really that simple. If it's literal, then creation was in six days. 24-hour sun rotation kind of days. Now, if, in fact, it happened in six days, then it becomes immensely hard to imagine how anything remotely close to the long ages touted by kind of standard geology and standard cosmology, etc., are are possible for the age of the earth and universe. It, it, it would... Um, that would be an astronomical leap that I'm just not even sure how we would begin to understand. I, I don't think it, it would be it would be possible. If Genesis 1, in fact, turns out to be literal, if it turns out that that is the best interpretation of these passages, then creation was certainly in six days, as I do believe it was. But what about, for the sake of argument, what about if it were non-literal? So uh, what about if, in fact, that the genre of Genesis 1 allowed us to uh, uh, entertain a interpretation of the text that made those days and, indeed, other uh, certain pieces of information in the text out to be non-literal. What happens then? Well, if it turns out that it is not uh, literal, then one is just as justified to posit that these days uh, lend themselves to a young age as they are an old age. And what happens then? Well, then you have to look elsewhere to answer the question, then you have to look elsewhere. So if it's literal, then creation had to be in six solar days. 
And we take that naturally and we understand that the long ages that are touted by the standard geology, etc., are impossible. But if it's non-literal, well, then it doesn't tell you any kind, any, any sort of information about that. And so many uh, 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 faithful uh, Bible scholars, those who disagree with me on the nature of Genesis, uh, would listen to that and jump for joy right now and say, yes, 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 this is what we have been saying. But the problem is that if you go back to our previous episode, we discussed where we actually get those long ages, or those, excuse me, where we get th- that short time period from. And indeed, we find that it is not in Genesis one at all. So yes, if in fact that we could take this uh, historical, grammatical, hermeneutic seriously, deal with the natural reading and understanding of Genesis, then uh, creation have almost for certain has to be in six days. But for the sake of argument, even if it is not literal, all it means is that Genesis one doesn't tell us anything about the question. There is no way to literally get from those passages the long ages from anywhere in Genesis 1. So that's where we're at. That is why um, Genesis 1 does not answer the age of the earth question definitively. Now, I think it does answer the age of the earth question, of course, and I can argue for the use of the historical, grammatical, hermeneutic in that scenario. But if we just take for the sake of argument that the, the best way to interpret uh, Genesis is as a uh, non-literal uh, portion of Scripture, well, then we have to get the information from elsewhere. And what Mark and I argued is that when you do that, the inescapable conclusion is that the earth must be young, relatively speaking. All right, so I hope that helps you understand where we were coming from on that and help you to to further kind of parry that Claim. So we're going to take a quick break and then come back to some questions. Do you struggle to defend what you believe? Is it possible that you might be able to articulate your answers in a clearer way and give good reasons for why Christianity is true. If you have never taken the time to start to learn about the reasons why Christianity is true and how you can very simply begin sharing it with others, then I want to invite you to check out our free four-lesson email course. You're actually going to get six emails, an introduction email, four-lesson emails, and then a conclusion email that does tell you a little bit about our ministry. But these four lessons are going to give you the key things, the key answers that you need to be able to defend your faith with confidence. In fact, that's the name of the free email course, Defend Your Faith with Confidence. So I pray that you would go there to steveschramm.com slash defend. Check that out. Get signed up and we will start by sending you your first email almost immediately and then we'll email you for a few days after that and give you the tools that you need to start defending your faith with confidence right away. So don't forget steveschramm.com slash defend. That's steveschramm.com slash defend. It's absolutely a free resource, a free course that we wrote just for you. And we're super excited to share it with you. steveschramm.com slash defend. Well, I had a, uh, a, a question come in from a gentleman named Derek on the genetic evidence for Adam and Eve. So what evidence is there from the field of genetics 
if any, that can help us uh, uh, understand that it is not a a population of 10,000 plus hominins that are responsible for the genetic biodiversity that we see today in the human race, but rather two original progenitors. Now, what I want to do is, is a couple things. First of all, I want to direct uh, you, Derek, and anyone else who's listening to an article over at Answers in Genesis that was written by doctors uh, Nathaniel Jensen and Jason Lyle. It's a long title, but I'm going to give it to you, and I'll put the link, of course, right here in the show notes. The, uh, the, uh, the, the piece is titled, On the Origin of Eukaryotic Species, Genotypic and Phenotypic Diversity. Let me say that again. On the origin of eukaryotic species, genotypic and phenotypic diversity. Now, the only thing longer than that title is the uh, journal piece itself. It is quite a read. It's a it's a long read. And uh, if you can make it through the whole thing, I think and understand it, you will learn quite a bit. It's pretty interesting. And I think it will be helpful. Another thing, uh, before just kind of briefly answering the question that I want to direct you to, is lesson 26 of this podcast, again, back when we were dealing specifically with issues of young earth creationism. uh, We did an episode called Genetic Evidence for a Recent Creation. And it was part of the series that we were doing on the biblical origin of humanity. And uh, we, we, we took quite a bit of time in that particular episode going through and answering this question, actually from a couple uh, different angles. And so I encourage you to go back and listen to that lesson. I encourage you also just to go back and grab that book. It was a really, really great book in general dealing with the biblical origin of man. It really dealt with the question of who was Adam, who were Adam and Eve, and looked at that from really from uh, multiple uh, vantage points, including New Testament and Old Testament studies, and uh, of course, lots of scientific information as well. So I highly encourage you to go check that book out, and it will give you a really good starting point as to how really to think about the origin of humanity in a young earth creationist perspective scientifically scientifically speaking. All right. Now, what I want to do is read you just a a couple of little quotes that are taken both from that episode and also that paper that was written. So Dr. Jensen says this, by multiplying the measured mutation rate of mitochondrial DNA by 180,000 years or by 4,500 years, we can make testable predictions about the time scale of human origins. Okay, so let me give you a, a little bit of background based on, on, on that particular sentence. I'm going to read it again. And then I'm going to give you a little bit of background. By multiplying the measured mutation rate of mitochondrial DNA by 180,000 years or by 4,500 years, we can make testable predictions about the timescale of human origins. Okay, now, if we have the 
measured mutation rate of mitochondrial DNA, which we do, and it's agreed upon by all uh, b- parties, then we can use that to go back in time, essentially, in the human genome and figure out how many mutations have taken place over different periods of time, okay? Now, there are two kinds of DNA. There are mitochondrial DNA and there are nuclear DNA. Nuclear DNA and mitochondrial DNA. Now, the problem with using nuclear DNA is that this type of DNA is passed down from both the mother and the father, and we have uh, different starting points. There is not agreement on the origin of nuclear DNA. In other words, we can't use uh, nuclear DNA to test our predictions with respect to the dating of mankind because we have different fundamental uh, agreements about the origin of that DNA. Okay, so for example, um, today we see all of the biodiversity in the human genome that we do. All right, well, evolutionary uh, geneticists want to say that in order to accomplish the biodiversity that we have, it is required that we start with around a starting population of around 10,000 humans in the beginning that would have descended from the ape-like ancestors. So at the point of uh, the last common ancestor to where we broke off and we became just a singular human species, we needed about 10,000 or so in that particular um, uh, 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 pool to, in order to, to produce the biodiversity that we have today. And of course, if you consider that, it considers also the fact that we have in our DNA traces of Neanderthal, etc. So the assumption here is this whole evolutionary timeline that had to take place. Now, we agree, young earth creationists agree on the observable biodiversity that that we have. Uh, to to deny that would be ridiculous. Although, as we look at it, the numbers uh, are, are staggering. We're really not that far uh, apart, relatively speaking. Um, m- most humans are genetically ninety nine percent identical. Okay, but. Still, we have this diversity in the gene pool that has to be accounted for uh, in the genome. And the problem is that on young age creationism, we don't think that we needed a 10,000 person population. We think we needed a population of two. But we agree on the biodiversity that is there. And so using uh, our brains, <laughs> using logic and uh, deducting from what the uh, Bible tells us, we think that probably the uh, original pair, Adam and Eve, were preloaded with a diverse set of genes, with a highly diverse genome. Now you say, well, that sounds arbitrary. 
That sounds like special pleading. Well, I don't think so. Because when we consider the data in the Bible, we don't see it being arbitrary. Here are just a couple things from the Bible that would lead us to conclude that there was a diverse set of biology to work with uh, within the uh, original human pair. One thing would be that if the original human pair had been genetically identical, then they would have been, by definition, identical. Do you see that? They had to be different in some measure to uh, be able to not be the same person, okay? They had to have some sort of differences. So that's an argument for their creation um, um, having been not identical, okay? They also, we see in the first chapters of the Bible that humanity was uh, living to much longer times than we see now. In other words, if we take a, a, a reading of the Bible that seems to be the natural correct reading, we see that people were living uh, just shy of 1,000 years old near the very beginning. Now, we can account for that if we have an untainted, genetically diverse group of humans. And so that is what we believe we had at the very uh, beginning. And of course, the genetic bottleneck at the flood would have uh, started to uh, engender the decrease in lifespan. And that is exactly what we saw. So these are just a couple of things that lead us to conclude logically that creation um, of the pair was genetically diverse from the outset. So we see that. So that is not a, a problem for us. And again, this whole idea of, of needing uh, 10,000 uh, a 10,000 member population in order to kind of kick off as it were the uh, human project is based on the assumption of uh, that the human pair or or that all humans rather were descended from a mother and father but this assumption is is just to assume the opposite of what we're trying to say because our worldview posits that we had a special creation, de novo creation, of the first male and female. So we needn't fall prey to these unargued assumptions that are happening on the other side. But at the same time, we still want to say, well, look, do we have evidence in what we can observe for uh, the... the the worldview for the story as we have it. And I think certainly that we do. So um, you'll recall that I said that by m multiplying the measured mutation rate of mitochondrial DNA, now we've seen why it has to be mitochondrial DNA. Let me explain that a little further because it had to be, uh, it has to be a source if we're going to do a direct comparison that we both agree on. Well, we both agree, the creationist and the evolutionist, on the, uh, the way that mitochondrial DNA works. Now, on mitochondrial DNA, we see that it is passed down basically strictly through the 
mother. And so we can actually carry this back to a specific point in the past. And we can use numbers from both sides. We can use creationist numbers and evolutionist numbers and multiply them by the mutation rate that we have of the mitochondrial DNA that we all agree on. And we could say, okay, how many mutations have taken place during this time and how many should have taken place during this time? So that is to say that we can make testable predictions based on this mitochondrial DNA that is a point of mutual Agreement. Now, what happens with the nuclear DNA is a completely separate question. Again, it's a completely separate question because we disagree on its origin. We all agree on the observable amount of biodiversity, but we disagree in the origin of that biodiversity. Was it a result of a de novo special creation? Or was it a result of evolutionary happenstance? Well, I don't, I don't think that it was. And again, we can get closer to a correct answer on that by performing this little experiment. So let me give you a quote here from uh, Drs. Nathaniel Jensen and Jeff Tompkins, who authored the chapter that we looked at when we did episode 26 on genetic evidence for a recent creation. Quote, after 180,000 years, humans would have accumulated over 2,000 DNA differences. So it was a range of 1,220 to roughly 4,700. So it would have accumulated over 2,000 DNA differences via the process of mutation to mitochondrial DNA. In just 4,364 years, humans would have accumulated only 30 to 114 mutations. Now get this. Currently, about 78 differences exist on average in African populations, the most genetically diverse of all the human ethnic groups, with a maximum difference of, give or take, 120 differences. Clearly, the YEC timescale, our Young Earth Creation timescale, accurately predicts the number of DNA differences that we observe today, while the evolutionary timescale predicts an order of magnitude higher. Similar results hold true in animal species. So it's important to, to see what happened there. Now, there are two different date uh, periods given, 180,000 years and roughly 4,500 years. Uh, for reasons that uh, you're welcome to, to check out in the paper uh, on the origin of eukaryotic species, genotypic and phenotypic diversity, the date of the flood was used rather than the date of creation for this experiment. So 4,500 years instead, instead of uh, 6,000 or so, um, not the least of which is the post-flood speciation rate. Okay, there are a variety of factors that went into that, and I encourage you to look into that. But the reality is that we do have good genetic evidence for a recent creation, and it's 100% testable because, again, as we've seen, that since we all agree on that mutation rate, we can simply 
do the numbers. We can run the numbers against the number of years that we think would be needed in order to show the young age creationist time scale and the numbers that they think in terms of the modern human species population arising. And we can crunch those numbers down and see who's got the right amount of mutational differences. And indeed, it turns out that the young earth creationist is well justified in his position on this. So that is just uh, some of the available evidence, uh, genetic evidence for Adam and Eve. I think there is a, a lot more. You can certainly uh, look up in different places, but I definitely think there are genetic uh, evidences that we can we can use to show that we're completely justified in holding this view that two humans were responsible to be the progenitors of the human race. All right, I got one more question here I'd like to uh, address. And rather than it being uh, a question that somebody asked me, it's just something that I observe people saying all the time. And uh, I was just watching a video of Norm Geisler and uh, listened to, to him uh, say it back in the day in some class that he was teaching. And I thought, well, you know, this is a really um, interesting and I think rather spurious uh, kind of ob objection to young age uh, creationism. And so I want to kind of bring this objection out to you really quick and, uh, and demystify it a little bit. The objection goes like this. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us the age of the universe. The Bible doesn't tell us the age of the universe. Okay. Well, this is interesting. And then, so in, in that very video I was referencing where, where Norm Geisler uh, made this point that the Bible doesn't say the age of the universe, he says, well, and I'm not even sure that we can use it to, um, to, to account at the chronological, uh, you know, uh, to get any kind of chronological data from it, really, because um, when I look to those genealogies in Matthew, I, I see gaps. I don't know. I, I see three generations of gaps. So, and on and on and on. All right. So, this is, of course, um, well, there's a lot here that, that, that we could say. Let's start with something very obvious. Of course, of course, the Bible doesn't tell us the age of the universe. Why? Why should we expect that the Bible tell us the age of the how, how? If the Bible were to tell us the age of the universe, exactly how would it do that? Well, now, that's the question. Uh, obviously, it can't... Uh, read these words. It can't say the universe is now 6,000 years old <laughs> because the Bible was written thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. So we're not going to, you know, the, the Bible is not just going to audibly say to us, well, the universe is, you know, and, and uh, so it's not going to even say 14 billion years ago, God created the heavens and the earth. But now the earth is without form and void, and darkness is upon the face. Now, if that kind of thing had happened, well, that would be interesting, but it didn't happen. Uh, it didn't happen that way. The Bible does not tell us the age of, of the universe, but the person who m raises this objection and makes this claim does so because they want to thwart the young age creationist view that we can glean the age of the earth and universe from the biblical data. So this is nothing more than a rhetorical um, 
trick, frankly. I can't, I hate to say that, but I can't bring myself to think that these learned individuals who often make a claim like this really think, uh, okay, that they are addressing the actual arguments raised by young age creationists for thinking that the Bible gives us information uh, concerning the age of things. And indeed, I think the age of things is rather important. It might seem like a trivial issue to you. Uh, fine. You can still be a Christian if you think it's a trivial issue. You can still be a Christian if you disagree with me on the issue. Uh, you're my brother. You're my sister. Let's go grab coffee. Let's talk it over. Let's leave as as friends and brothers and sisters. Okay, whatever. I'm I'm not dogging you if you hold a different view. I highly respect folks who hold a different view, but that's not to say that it's not important. I do think the age of things is an important issue, and I think it's something uh, worth being able to argue for and worth holding a particular kind of view for and uh, fighting for in Christian academic circles. I really do think it is is worth it because it is that important. But here's the question, really. What kind of information and details should we expect if the Bible has something to say about this. Now, that's the question. The question is not whether the Bible tells us the age of the universe. Of course, it doesn't because it's an ancient document. The question is, what kind of details or information should we expect from the Bible if it has anything at all to say on this? So I wrote down five quick things. There are more. There are plenty more, trust me, uh, that that I could uh, go through. But I wrote down five uh, as a matter of a brainstorm that I thought were important and relevant to this. Um, so what are some things that we'd expect if the Bible has something to say about this? Well, first, I think we'd have a worldview that was concerned with history. I think the Bible would teach a worldview that was concerned with history. And indeed, If you look at the biblical worldview over and against the worldview of all, and I do mean literally all, of Israel's ancient Near Eastern neighbors, you are going to find something completely different. You're going to find a worldview of what John Oswald calls, um, or Oswald, excuse me, calls transcendence rather than continuity. That is, Israel believed something radical for their time and place in history. They believed in a creator that was other than the cosmos. Everybody else believed that the deity, any kind of deity, any gods that there were, were simple manifestations of the laws of nature. They were one with the cosmos. Everybody was one with each other. And history, in their views, did really not even matter. That's why we have virtually no meaningful historical recording from the ancient Near East, absent of what we find in Israel. The only other things that we have that are meaningful at all are are, are are some of the myths, that is the origin stories of the different um, uh, uh, groups. And as far as actual historical recording, we only have uh, such information as the battles that were fought. And usually only if they were actually won by the particular people group. And we have some king lists and things like that. But there was nothing like the kind of historical recording that we have in the Bible. And furthermore, when we look at the Bible, we see this constant importance 
of history. We see God working in the world, and that is crucially important to the worldview of Israel. The Bible constantly, we see this instruction to teach your children, to bring your children up, raise them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. They need to be brought up to understand their heritage, to understand that God has been working in the world. He has not been silent. This worldview is rooted in history. Now, could we still have a worldview that was concerned with history and a billions of year old universe? Well, yeah, sure, sure. Of course we could. That's not that's not the question. The question is if the Bible is the kind of document that's going to give us some kind of information on the age of the cosmos, on the age of the earth on which we live, what kinds of things should we expect? Okay, that's the question we're asking. And on that, we should, yes, be expecting a worldview concerned with history. So things are going to be recorded that place the events of the Bible in a specific date and time period, okay? And if you go back and listen to my episode with Mark Lambert, that was episode 89 just a few weeks ago, that is the kind of thing that you're going to see. You're going to see this continual importance given to the things, the events that were happening in real time, in real history, and you see the cultural context is there, you see that we have actual archaeological dating confirming most of this stuff, and the Bible is rooted in history. And I think that is an argument to to level against the charge that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about this. Okay, the second important thing would be references to historical people. That is, we have references, uh, even Uh, from Jesus himself to the first created pair, to Adam and Eve. We have references later on in the Bible. I believe Jude references um, Abel. Is it Abel that Jude references, I believe? Okay, we have Paul uh, and all of the other New Testament writers uh, connecting this history back from the very first chapters of the Bible, connecting a, a... religious significance, a theological, I guess I should say, um, significance to Jesus Christ. But it's not merely a theological significance. There is an actual historical significance too. As Adam was, of course, the first Adam, so Jesus Christ is the second Adam. Jesus Christ was brought in to... um, to cover the sin, to give a sacrifice, to be that offering, to pay for the sin. As through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, okay, Jesus overcame that sin. He overcame that sin. In fact, the Bible says he became sin, who knew no sin for us, so that we could have the righteousness of God, the imputed righteousness of God. So there are these references to historical people, and the theology is directly rooted in the history. Now, something else we have is direct familial connections between people of known history and, quote, unknown history. Now, 
by unknown history, I realize that a common creationist retort to that is that there is no such thing as prehistory because the Bible lays it all out. Okay, well, let's be a little more careful with our distinctions here. When somebody says uh, prehistorical, what they mean is before the time of known historical record keeping. That is, um, before we can prove that anything was written down uh, by anybody. Uh, By the way, oral tradition being as big a deal as it was in uh, ancient Israel, I have no problem thinking that most of what we understand from the first few chapters of the Bible was not actually written down on paper until the time of Moses, between the fact that we have God inspiring Moses and the uh, importance of oral tradition throughout Jewish uh, life and literature. I have I have no problem at all thinking that this was, uh, that many of these details were preserved through oral tradition. Now, uh, that's not to rule out uh, the contention that perhaps there was some writing. Maybe there was, but I, I don't think we can prove that, at least not right now. So what I want to, to do is show that there are familial connections between people of known history and unknown history. That is, um, we realize that before the time of Abraham, we don't have any kind of other documents that would co- corroborate any of that. In fact, I don't. I don't really even think that there's anything that would corroborate um, the uh, existence of Abraham, other than the fact that the cultural customs and and everything were were right for his time period. It seems that indeed uh, the um, the manners and customs and things that we see recorded in the Bible are consistent with the kinds of things that would have been going on during the time that he is suggested to have lived. So, uh, no problems there. But we see these genealogical connections. We see these connections that are happening between people of known history and people of unknown history. We see how we get to Abraham and beyond Abraham from people who led to Abraham. And when we get to the New Testament, we find that these writers also affirmed those relationships. I mean, why would a New Testament writer mention Abel if Adam didn't exist? Why would we be able to glean from the genealogical data a direct connection from Adam to Noah to Abraham? We can do that because we have these genealogical uh, connections, these kind of connections that would we should expect if the Bible has something to say about the age of the earth and or universe. Now, we also have, number four, distinct chronological markers that are useless if not for developing a chronology. Distinct chronological markers that are useless if not for developing a chronology. Why give us in the two places that we need them, as I mentioned in my interview with Mark recently, why give us the um, kind of chronological information in the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11 that we would need to ensure that those gaps did not exist? You know, um, Dr. Geisler didn't point to um, definitive gaps in Genesis 5 and 11 when he raised doubt about um, the fact of whether the genealogies could be um, 
used to develop a chronology. He mentioned a New Testament genealogy uh, in Matthew. Uh, well, this is just completely irrelevant. Even if we see that some generations are missing there, um, we still have plenty of information that shows us that the Genesis 5 and 11 genealogies uh, should be closed. We have good arguments that those genealogies should should be closed. And I will link you to an article that I wrote uh, in uh, on my blog that kind of goes through some of that, just a, an argument for meaningful genealogies in Genesis that have more to do with just uh, connecting families uh, across different generations. It's more than just connecting those generations. I think that we have real chronological information we can get from those genealogies. And I think that even if you were to argue for gaps in those genealogies, you're not going to get any more of it about 10,000 years with reasonable data. And you know what? I think most people just ignore that. They reason that because other genealogies have gaps, these genealogies can have gaps as well. Well, okay, for the sake of argument, maybe that's true. But if we give gaps in the places that they could be, uh, based on if we actually look at the words that are written and we can come to a conclusion based on them, we see that uh, genealogies cannot be added to the tune, or excuse me, um, generations could not be added to the tune of more than about 10,000 years in total for the age of the earth and universe because there are other chronological markers in there that tell us um, the, the, rather the place constraints on that. And rather than rehearse all that right now, I'm just going to direct you to that article. It's a super short read. Um, and I think even um, being as short as it is, it provides a good argument uh, to think that the genealogies of Genesis are, are indeed closed. Um, and even if they're not closed, they are uh, strictly limited. Okay, and finally, we should expect a theology that has difficulty making sense of one age solution over another. Um, I don't even know if there are old earth proponents who would argue that it's easier to, um, or, or who would not argue that it's easier to build a consistent theology on young age creationism. Um, indeed, I don't have actual data on this, but I have been told anecdotally that it's interesting when you go to some of these large universities that are known for their big apologetics programs, that their theology departments are, are the majority of our young earth. Um, the, the majority of professors in their theology departments are young earth. And when you get into their uh, philosophy departments, etc., they tend to be more old earth. Well, I mean, to me, that's just, that's just interesting. I mean, it, it doesn't prove anything, but it is interesting. I think it's easier to form a more consistent theology in young age creationism because you have things that you don't have to try to explain away. You know, we can take very seriously uh, the fact that there was no uh, death of sentient life uh, before the fall. We can take very seriously that the original created order um, did not involve that. It, we had vegetarians, um, vegetarian humans and vegetarian animals. We can take all that very seriously. Uh, we can 
look at these genealogies and take them at face value. And even when we look at them a little deeper, we can consistently maintain that they give us the kind of information that they do um, for a particular reason. We can we, we just see this consistent uh, line all throughout history, the kind of thing that me and Mark talked about the other day, that just doesn't uh, doesn't break for anyone or anything. Um, I think all these five put together, they don't tell us that the earth is young. Of course not. Nor did they, te- nor did they tell us that the earth is old. But what they do is they tell us that the Bible is the kind of book, it is a collection of the kinds of documents that would um, uh, give information to help us develop chronological uh, theories that are more consistent with it than not. And I think that the cumulative case shows that the young age position is able to be a bit more consistent than the old age position and has much less uh, theological difficulty to explain. Well, hey, thanks for hanging out with us this week. Why don't we end with a word of prayer? Um, Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you uh, so much for your wonderful gifts. Thank you for everything that you do for us. Thank you, Lord, that we can agree, uh, disagree rather amicably with brothers and sisters, with those whom we love. And I just want to say, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to study your word and your world. And t- for me personally, to be able to share my particular thoughts on things with others, whether they agree or disagree. Uh, I absolutely love that you've given me this platform and this opportunity to share uh, my heart with the world. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do in our lives. And we pray now that you would just continue, Lord, to uh, allow us to feel your presence. Lord, we understand already that you're with us. Lord, allow us to feel that, to have that comfort in each and every area of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Alrighty, well, hey, look, and I want to thank you again for joining us this week on the Steve Schramm Show. We didn't have an episode last week. Um, things were a little crazy. I was moving, uh, just trying to find somewhere to put a desk, and then I finally did get set up and thought I was going to be able to uh, get an episode out for you, and then some guys showed up at the house to do some work. So uh, we skipped last week, which is uh, rare. We've only, I think we've only ever skipped one other week. Uh, here on the podcast since it began so I'm pretty proud of that and uh, I'm thankful that you guys continue to join us and continue to tune in week after week we certainly do love you and want to say thank you for the opportunity thank you for giving us your ear for a little while and we'll see you next time thanks so much again bye-bye